Francisco, you're going to see some shit on the sidewalk there. Ryan is speaking the truth. Today, we are going to my hometown, cinematic San Francisco. We'll be covering the fine films of Last Black Man in San Francisco, Zodiac, and Joy Luck Club. So, uh, let's go. Oh, let's let's take two. What? I didn't like. You didn't like the rice aroni. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna re-sing it. Okay. I feel like my singing was pretty good. <laughs> How many times do you want me to sing it? Duncan, having grown up near San Francisco, I feel like you've got to have some stories. You know, you you know the city a little better than me. Maybe my singular initial experience isn't all there is to see in that beautiful city something i've come around to no right it was quite the opener we we know we are on the same page tell your story and i will i will give it the stamp of approval okay i was a i was a young college pup i was writing my senior thesis on human trafficking and there was an anti-human trafficking seminar by david batstone in san francisco so i flew out there for the week to attend never been uh, coming from the old Midwest corn country in Illinois, fly in, get on the BART, take the BART to my stop. I got to stop you right there, Ryan. What? It's BART. No, the. Oh, you got to okay. learn your terminology. See, I'm not, I'm not from there. Jumped on BART, <clears throat> got off at my stop, took the stairs up to the street. And the first thing that I greeted me was an actual turd. No, not you, Duncan, an actual human turd someone had just laid it right across the front step uh it's sad but true that is a common uh theme of san francisco i think the scent of san francisco has to be shit piss and a whole lot of weed (laughs) yeah when i got to the hostel the the clerk behind me gave me a map and he just circled this giant like 20 square block area and he said don't go there Wait, I need to see this map. That because San Francisco is not that physically big, especially the downtown. So what did he circle? I was near the Tenderloin, is what I remember it being called. All right, yes, the Tenderloin, prominently featured in Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's true, San Francisco is a very wealthy city, getting richer and richer, but there is also a lot of homelessness, a lot of heroin, and a lot of the poor getting poorer. What about you, Duncan? Give me, give me a happier memory. Give me a happier time in San Francisco. Happier memory? Okay. So to give my San Francisco credibility, I got a name drop. My grandpa, he had a day named after him in San Francisco because he was an old school 49er player playing on the field as featured in Dirty Harry. Your grandpa played for the 49ers? Duncan, you're holding out on me. He also played for the Chicago Bears. Look at him, number 72. 
Looking for gold. I love it. <laughs> I got that football in my blood, even though I've never played a day in my life. No wonder you love football so much. Yeah, so he's got the day. Mama was born there, but as Ryan likes to mention, I was not born there. You go across Duncan. that Bay Bridge. You travel through Oakland. Jump over to the side of the highway in Berkeley. That's where I became a little hippie baby. And then I grew up in the fine city of Arinda, who has a very rich cinematic universe. We are name-dropped in the Adam Scott film Little Evil about our film festival. In Bullet, they talk about the wonderful rose gardens in Arinda and our number one claim to fame in the social network. Justin Timberlake talks about sleeping with a girl from Arinda. So it wasn't it wasn't Penny, was it? Penny, well done, JT. Oh, now I see what you're saying. No, it was not. <laughs> Back in the top dog. No, I am not JT's stepson. That's 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 your role. One day, gotta have dreams. Me and Penny. Um, yeah. So after my initial reaction, which was you know fairly negative, thinking San Francisco was not the greatest city, and uh, I've come around. I I've just grown to love the bridge, the neighborhoods, the hills some of the quieter places. It's a really gorgeous city with old architecture and beautiful parks. And I've really come to love the city, but I had to, you know, they were playing hard to get to begin with. No, I mean, yeah, you, you come off a bar train and they shut down the escalators a few times a year to clean out all of the human feces that backs them up. So if you keep your eyes and nose above gutter level, San Francisco is a beautiful city. Bent my Weekends as a little youth going to punk shows in the porn district, as featured in once again, Dirty Harry, showing some of the worst parts of the city. Duncan, actually, the last time I was in San Francisco, I saw one of my favorite places, which I did not know existed. And I stumbled upon the Palace of Fine Arts. Oh, yeah. And it floored me. It reminded me of something out of ancient Rome or ancient Greece with like <laughs> the reflecting pond and the columns and the dome. Uh, and that, that I still remember was a time that I distinctly remember thinking, I do love San Francisco. Yeah. There's, there's that beautiful architecture there, the Victorian style homes throughout the city, the centerpiece of last black man in San Francisco. We've got the goods. We can bring the goods when needed. And sometimes you just need an outhouse. (laughs) You two stick together. I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? We could throw parties. You could put on one of your plays. We could yell. It is this house. Our old house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood. So Duncan, we're talking about one of my favorite films of 2019, Last Black Man in San Francisco. I knew that when we were doing this episode, we had to throw it on there as the uh, the title film. It was written and directed by Joe Talbot. It's about Jimmy Fails and his dream to reclaim the Victorian home that his grandfather built uh, in the heart of San Francisco. And he's got a best friend, Mont, and basically the whole film is kind of an uh, ensuing misadventure of them trying to reclaim Jimmy's old home. Yeah, I haven't made a top five of 2019, but I'm sure this one would be in there. Yeah, it, it is gorgeous. It's hard to describe what it's really about because this thing is dense with themes. Yeah, it, it is very dense. There's pretty much anything that might come up when you talk about home 
uh, or a lot of us deal with when we talk about home. It's a complicated, messy, beautiful, heartbreaking issue. So uh, I think this movie just reminds me of a visual poem of home. And it brings up, you know, racism to toxic relationships to broken things and just everything that uh, that home is to so many people. It's it's fueled by memory and by uh, its images. Yeah. Home and identity, the stories you tell yourself to get by, you know, is that identity you're holding on to holding you down, clinging desperately or lifting you with hope. This movie was well received by critics. Like I said, I first heard about it when it opened. I can't remember the festival, but pretty much everyone fell in love with it. It might have been Sundance since Joe Talbot won the director award there. It's 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Its audience is 84. Again, uh, the director, Joe, and then the lead actor, Jimmy Fails, are friends. They wrote the story together. Um, A lot of this is clearly a deeply personal story for them you'll see a familiar face in danny glover as grandpa to montgomery and yeah what were you thinking duncan what were your thoughts on this guy it is surreal visual poetry throughout shot outside uh, was reminding me of do the right thing with sort of bounce boards creating light creating this sort of surreal uh, atmosphere going on they're skateboarding throughout slow motion through the tenderloin beautiful shots of the architecture. Well, even that opening shot of the guy in the hazmat suit and the little girl just staring up at him. I mean, just so provocative. Yeah, it it starts strong and then and holds it all the way through. Yeah, I really feel like it doesn't lose uh, a lot of its momentum. It kind of takes you in with its, its own energy, its own pace. It's fairly fast. It has a lot to say. It doesn't shy from it. It says it in its own way. And if you can get on board, it is uh, just a really enjoyable, very thought-provoking and powerful film. So Duncan, as you referenced earlier, there are a whole lot of themes, a whole lot of ideas in this movie. Uh, I think one of the biggest ones is how place and the place you come from is so core to your identity, how that place changes outside of your control how you then uh, manipulate or change or recreate that image of that place in your own mind. Like I said earlier, it's a poem of home and just some of the disorientation that occurs when that home is taken away from you. Kind of a melancholy homesickness. What's a city that you feel the strongest connection to? Chicago is kind of like my hometown big city growing up. But it was always a special occasion when we went there. I grew up much further south, right in the middle of Illinois. I grew up on a farm for 10 years of my life. And so Chicago was like a treat. You went up there to watch the cub, see the big city and the skyscrapers to experience the things you couldn't experience. So while it was a big city I grew up loving, I don't think I really ever got to know it during those formative years. And I still haven't spent enough time in it now to really feel like I, I understand its history as well as say Chattanooga, which I've spent a good deal of time in and around. For me, I think it was just doing a quick count. I think before the age of 21, I had lived in five different places. So yeah, for me, like home has certainly never been a physical building, which it certainly is here in last black man in San Francisco. So yeah, that's that sense of home, you know, is there a spirit of the city? I mean, San Francisco, it was funny watching Vertigo. They're talking about 
I miss the good old days of San Francisco. And they were saying that in the 50s. Easy. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been changing for, for decades, you know, from the gold rush to burning down in 1909. Hippies coming in, trying to create a new utopia, dot-com money, the gay community, the venture capitalists buying everything out. So yeah, Blade Runner. I believe Matrix 4 did film some scenes in the Tenderloin. you damn right they did. <laughs> and it was dystopian. That's the thing. Like, does the heart of a city change? Do the people change? You just don't want to be kicked out of your home. And then when is it time to let go? That's a, that's a tough thing to chew on. And that's what's so beautiful about this movie is you don't want to be kicked out of your home, but in one way or another, whether you stay there or whether you don't, or whether you never had a sense of home, everything changes underneath you, beneath your feet. Like you could stay where your home is and time just changes things. And I think that that's what this movie is so good at showing through its imagery. The score I feel like was just spot on capturing the energy uh, and the enthusiasm that Jimmy has for his home and his city while still being mournful and sad. It kind of captures them being adrift in this world they once knew and they're trying to find their way back and their anchor is this house that Jimmy's grandfather built that he can't afford, um, but that he refuses to let go. And even there you get some of the, uh, some comedy out of the gentrification of San Francisco where he's painting the house that he cares about while the older white affluent couple are throwing peppers at him, trying to get him to stop giving free labor to keep their house up, which is just a bit of, I don't know. I just think, it's uh, really sincere and funny and heartwarming and also sad. It's just, it's all at once. I think they nail a cornucopia of emotions. You don't need to go for the whole city, just the house alone. You're saying he's doing that touch-up work because he loves it. But the white woman who don't love the term, but was being a real Karen, throwing the croissants at him. She had the house taken away from her by another family member. It said that the black community only moved into the Fillmore after World War II and the Japanese were taken out of the city and, you know, put in internment camps. So it's, yeah, there's also manifest destiny in there in the beginning, like people taken in, kicked out. Yeah, and I think I think as well, capturing the heartache of how San Francisco is so transient now, where Jimmy feels rooted with his family being there, his family having built something there. Another classic scene of him on a bus and there's these two, for lack of a better term, hipster uh, white girls. And they're just complaining about oh, San Francisco this and San Francisco that. And he overhears it. I think the most memorable quote and one of the most powerful ideas of the movie is he tells uh, those girls, you don't get to hate it unless you love it. And I think that has really stuck with me through the film. Uh, whenever I think about where I am, whether I like it or I don't like it, whether I'm content or discontent the thought now comes to my mind, well, have you learned to love it first? Or do you know why people love it? I think that's just a really insightful, powerful engine that is really driving this movie and so much of the character and the heart and the narrative. My last little lovely tidbit of the film for me was there's a lot of uh, San Francisco legends throughout the film. We have Jello Biafra, singer of hardcore punk band, Dead Kennedys. They cast him as a man giving Segway tours 
But for me, you just get that paradox of, you know, down and dirty, hardcore 80s to now just yuppie, yuppie, fun time. We're here on a vacation just passing through. I thought, I don't know if I'm reading into that more than it's there, but a beautiful little metaphor for San Francisco's evolution. Yeah, it seems like a nod and a wink. I feel like Joe knows what he's doing there. So one final thought, without giving anything away, there is a scene with a rowboat. And it just really reminded me of the final lines of The Great Gatsby. The future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. And so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Woo! This, this, this Fitzgerald guy's going places. <laughs> I, think, I, think this, I think somebody should tell somebody about this guy. He's, he's a writer. We see the rowboat, you know, just in the down, dirty, low tide, stinky, stink, stink. And then a moment later, after a beautiful embrace, that bay is full again. And then paddling against the bay. These are the many surreal moments. And these surreal moments lead us right into four fans of George Washington. Uh, I think we talked about this before. David Gordon Green's film. Just visual poetry, narrative poetry, right on there. Also, Beasts of the Southern Wild, one of the films I love. Another film, very surreal film, poetic, similar scores, just very whimsical and uplifting, but also about losing your home in the case of Beasts due to Hurricane Katrina and that weather there. And also, quick little shout out to Medicine for Melancholy, also talking about uh, the experience of being Black in San Francisco and what the city changes. Also shares that theme. You. You can't hate it unless you love it. And I don't know if there's a direct nod there, but in Medicine for Melancholy, they're saying you never see a black woman with an Asian man. Oh, but we do see that in Last Black Man in San Francisco. So I wonder if that was a little nod of the hat there or just a happy coincidence. Or maybe this is the beginning of a Joe Talbot, Barry Jenkins feud over the narrative (laughs) future of San Francisco. Every 10 years, we will get another shot fired. I mean, Duncan, I just recently watched last stance so now i'm just assuming this is a few this is jordan and isaiah thomas all over again (laughs) the zodiac killer has come to san francisco another letter school children make nice targets he gave himself a name greek morse code astrological signs this guy's used them all i like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all one do that. I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at the gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. All right, now we are moving on to Zodiac from 2007. David Fincher, a North Bay Bay Area director, dealing with the Zodiac. So we have a naive newspaper cartoonist, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, teams up with a jaded, wide-cracking reporter, Robert Downey Jr., and a police inspector, Mark Ruffalo, to track down the Zodiac killer, played by, uh, we don't know who it's played by, because spoiler alert, this case is still open. Sorry, justice does not always prevail. You're saying that it could be you, Duncan. You live in that uh, area. I think my birth <laughs> takes me out from being a potential suspect. 
All right. When I think of Zodiac, I think of two scenes. The first scene is a stabbing in broad daylight. And even after seeing it multiple times, it will overwhelm me to the point of tears, just how straightforward and brutal it is. And also the second scene, you've mentioned this, the most controversial scene in the film, apparently, is when he's in the basement with the film poster guy. Oh, yeah. I thought that was vintage Fincher. I loved how he played with us there. When he turns the light off and it just it goes into inky blackness, like, you know, it's not it's not like going to turn into a slasher film. But damn, if you don't feel like it, your heart's telling you it is. I mean, that I like that scene, too. But apparently, yeah, the most polarizing scene. A lot of people hate that, think it has no place being in the film. Get it out of there. Oh, I think it's just Fincher having fun. Uh, one one thing I think that this movie was missing for me was some of Fincher's trademark dread and darkness. Normally his films are just drenched in the dark side of man. And I, I felt at the first 30 minutes, it just kind of felt a little campy to me, almost like he was having fun with it. Uh, I was interested when you mentioned the stabbing scene in broad daylight being so affecting. I, it wasn't that I didn't find it affecting, but I didn't find it that scary. It almost came across as campy. And I was interested in your thoughts there. Here, the murders seem to just pop up out of nowhere. As we were talking about the scene in the basement, that's really playing with tension and mood. But when we see the Zodiac kill, it's basically just, who's that person over there? And then, oh, they're walking towards us. And then an explosion of violence. So yeah, it's not, it's, it's just, yeah, an explosion of violence. There's not like a simmering boiling over. It just comes right up at you. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that just kind of took me off guard kind of not usually venture builds up to it. I do think the way this movie really redeemed itself for me was how he showed Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Robert Graysmith, who wrote the book, uh, his dark obsession with the serial killer in tandem or as a foil to the serial killer's obsession with killing. I think that that juxtaposition is just what makes this film go. And then, I mean, Duncan, I was also just really... Well, I mean, this movie is doing our work for us. It has a bullet reference. Mark Ruffalo wearing his gun the way Bullet does. Dirty Harry premiere. I mean, we talked about that. This is its own San Francisco film episode within a movie. We're getting so meta. Yeah. So yeah, in the in the commentary, Fincher mentions being appalled at the first time he saw Dirty Harry. And I can definitely see that. I think Dirty Harry came out while the Zodiac was still killing. I mean, they call the character the Scorpio. You know, he's writing letters to the newspaper. So it's ripped from the headlines style of film. But Dirty Harry and his <laughs> quite too long Magnum just pops into San Francisco and cleans that mess up all by himself. Um, yeah, which David Fincher nods at when the, when the person in the movie theater looks at Mark Ruffalo and goes, Harry took care of a case for you. I thought that was a funny uh, aside. <laughs> All right, Raga, what, what's, what are your main takeaways from this film? It didn't feel as long as I knew it was. I felt like it was well-paced. If anyone knows anything about the Zodiac, you know that he was never caught or identified or brought to justice. So for a, a movie that basically is a whodunit and the whodunit climax is automatically disqualified, I thought that the, the ability to pull off 
this movie's pacing and its tension and keep our interest and keep characters strong was remarkable. I mean, it's not my favorite Fincher, don't get me wrong, but it's strong. Yeah, I think everyone's in agreement with you there. It's an enjoyable watch. It's engaging all the way through. But what, we get 77% from the fans. So I don't, yeah, it's not, it felt like it was, it was missing a, a heart. I mean, it certainly entertains, but you're not, you get what I'm trying to say? Make my yeah. words sound pretty, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, you just feel like maybe Fincher's heart isn't in it, but at, like you were saying, the obsessive nature of serial killers mirrors the obsessive nature of David Fincher as a director. And so you almost feel like maybe that's why he latched onto this as opposed to it being a personal or a deeply uh, necessary story for him to tell. Right, I got, I got a counterpoint there. Watching the director's commentary, you know, it was a personal film for him. Uh, since he grew up in the Bay Area and, you know, remember some of these newscasts, remember seeing these letters in the paper, members list, hearing Three Dog Night playing after a newscast, and that's how it ends up in the film. So it's, it's certainly something that fascinates him, that obsesses him. But yeah, is it personal to his heart? Debatable, but obsession. Let's talk about the obsession. So uh, serial killers are known to have an obsessive nature, and so is David Fincher. This is, how do you know that, Duncan? Huh? How do you know that? How do you know so much about serial killers? Ryan, did you ever go through a serial killer phase? I didn't. Ryan's a nice, healthy little boy. I think, you know, the furthest Raised I on want. corn and, you know, learn to keep my shirt on. <laughs> Fincher, known for being obsessive. There is certain scenes in this film. They did over 50 takes. In the bonus features, there's like an hour-long documentary on the making of the film and an hour and a half long documentary on the Zodiac Killer. This boy did his research. He's so neurotic, he digitally added hair for Jake Gyllenhaal's knuckles because his hand double uh, was lacking that hair. Attention to detail that is not needed. And I'll quote Fincher directly here. I got a kick out of this one. I think things so through to the point where a wooden Indian could show up to act and I could still make the shooting day. Not the prettiest portrayal of actors. I, I think I'm reading that out of context there. Because, you know, as Hitchcock and Kubrick, you know, other masters of cinema who are very obsessed over the camera and don't get a lot of credit for acting. I think, you know, there's too many actors in this film to name. And I think they all give great performances, even if they're only in one or two scenes. I'm thinking about John Carroll Lynch who before this film, I only knew as the cross-dressing man from the Drew Carey show and Jimmy Simpson, who I only knew from Always Sunny in Philadelphia as a creepy sort of incestuous pedophile. And to see them as other characters, like you get great performances in this film. As I realized, I thought I didn't like Jake Gyllenhaal. I think I've come to the realization I just didn't like Donnie Darko and that painted sort of a Bad picture for me for a long time. Tony Darko scarred more people than just you, Duncan. Okay. We're in agreement there. I think this movie is for fans of, I mean, the easy seven, also a Fincher film, also about serial killers. Uh, it's about the seven deadly sins and then the eighth, Kevin Spacey. Uh, <laughs> and then you have Mindhunter, Spotlight, which is similar in nature to hunting down the doers of dastardly and evil deeds. And then Nightcrawler, definitely came up for me. I was glad to see you had listed that. 
it is very much about chasing a story, obsessing about it, even questionably moral ways. Since David Fincher is a favorite director for both of us, I think I think we got to just give a quick top five of, of, of his work. All right. My top five Finch. Number five, I'm going with Alien 3 simply because, as we said in the intro episode, I had that poster above my bed as a preteen boy. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. That's all you need to know. Our future therapist that's going to be on the show is going to figure that out for us. Speaking of posters, my college years, I had a giant poster of my number one Fincher film, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, with Brad Pitt's mournful, soulful eyes just staring at me every day. What'd that do for my psyche? I think it caused a drinky problem. <laughs> number four for me, Social Network. Give that a Rinda shout out. Number three, I cheated. Went with his serial killer show, Mindhunters. I noticed Rip- that. I was going to say, that's his TV show. You I'm dog. cheating. I'm For Fincher, yeah. I'm, as we're talking about the stories we tell ourselves in Last Black Man in San Francisco, for me and Fincher, I think I love number two, seven, number one, Fight Club. And then after that, I think all of his films are really engaging, but don't really s- sort of strike my mind or heart as much as those two. Yeah, I think I kind of ran into the same thing. So we've talked about my number one curious case. I never fail to cry when I watch that movie. If you don't like it, that's fine. I just don't understand you as a person. We're going to have to watch that one together. And you you show me the beauty that I'm missing because I, I think it just sort of washed over me. So yeah, we'll get into that in a future. Yeah, we'll make, we'll make that a, I mean, we could say a blind date, but you've seen it, but maybe it's a second date. Um, <laughs> Fight Club is my number two. You're number one. It's easy. It's brilliant. It's funny. It's messed up. It's engaging. Uh, number three, Social Network, also kind of an easy one. Uh, I was floored. I remember when I heard he was making a movie about Facebook, I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. And then I went and saw it in theaters and I could not believe how good it was. Uh, and then after that, it's a drop off for me. I enjoy Seven. It's really engaging. That'd be my number four. But again, it's missing the same heart that I feel like the Zodiac's missing. And then number five, exact same thing. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I loved the books. I loved Fincher's vision. I think he nailed the soul of the books. Uh, But again, unfortunately, it didn't have much of his soul in it. And I still mourn the fact that he never finished that trilogy. I think we've covered Zodiac. Any final thoughts there, Dunks? Nah. All right, well, let's move on to our final film of San Francisco. My mother started the Joy Luck Club. For 30 years, these women feasted, forgot past wrongs, laughed, played, lost and won, and told the best stories. No talking in Chinese. How do I know you're not cheating? We are your auntie, and we are very honest people. Hollywood Pictures presents the story of four extraordinary women who left their homeland behind. I was raised the Chinese way. To build a future for their daughters in America. Uh, I honestly hadn't heard about this movie at all, Duncan, until you brought it up in relation to our San Francisco episode. Yeah, so for me, the biggest takeaway from this film is my shock and how it got made. How many films have you seen that are primarily Asian American, have eight female leads, four of which are over the age of 50, has 15 actors playing eight different characters over multiple timelines. 
The whole cast is 80% female. The males are minor secondary characters. The biggest star in the film is Andrew McCarthy, who was also in Weekend at Bernie's 2 when this was released. And a large section of the film is in foreign language. It's over two hours long. And Disney funded a film with Babies in Peril produced by Oliver Stone. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not typically your recipe for success to make it in old Hollywood, um, or especially in 93. But yeah, this movie reminded me a lot of uh, last year's The Farewell and also Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, I was very surprised. But yeah, the, the focus on the cast, uh, Asian-American female-led story. And yeah, it was incredibly unique and, and very refreshing in that way. Certainly melodramatic. <laughs> so Duncan, let's just get this out of the way. Like Buster Bluth, I, at the end of this movie, might have thrown my, my head back and screamed to the heavens, I'm a monster, and then ripped down the curtains from my wall. Because this movie, as much as I wanted to like it, I just couldn't get behind it. Uh, I mean, this ranks up with my top five times that I was a monster and didn't like something everyone else did, including Juno, all the new Disney Star Wars. They're not my cup of tea. Uh, and then apparently everyone cried when they watched Credit Gerwig's Little Women last year. I didn't because I'm dead inside. I'll throw in my against the grains so we don't hang Ryan out to dry. I'll take some of the heat for you, too. There was four years in a row, four oscar best picture winners where i just had to shake my head and go what is going on after the credits rolled starting in 2008 slumdog millionaire for me it was hard to go from a little boy wailing in a literal pile of shit to having a musical ending <laughs> yeah that was that was that movie that movie had some pretty pretty uh bipolar tone shifts <laughs> yeah that was that was hard, hard for me to take that ride then 2009 hurt locker Good film, but classic for me, classic example of show, don't tell. When Jeremy Renner's snuggling up with his little baby and basically says, I love war more than you. That, that really took me out of it right there. Little deal on the nose? Bomb on the nose right there. Exploding in my face. Then 2010, King's Speech, my guy, Guy Pierce, just like Jeremy Renner, decides he'd rather be a playboy than a king. But there was one scene in there. When Colin Firth kids see him as a king for the first time and they curtsy to him and he goes, no, you're my daughter's. There's my little melodrama moment. That was okay. But overall, you like your guy Pierce a little more, a little more angsty and angry. They took out my guy. And then 2011, the artist. Totally. I was wildly underwhelmed by that. I should have added that. I forgot about that one. 95% from the critics, 87% from the fans. It got best picture over Tree of Life. And I don't think it was just, it robbed Tree of Life. I think it, I just, I didn't see what other people saw, to put it kindly. <laughs> I think people just got so excited that someone's like, we're going to make a silent film, wait for it, not in 1911, in 2011. <laughs> I think it was just a nostalgia trip. And it was just, you know, I hate to say it, but it felt to me like an emperor's has no clothes situation. Reoccurring theme, Duncan's not wearing a shirt. <laughs> So right, let's go melodrama. My, my gut reaction for the film, I actually really liked it. I mean, it's unlike anything I've ever seen, which is, I don't think, a justification to praise a film in its own just because it's different in that sense. 
Um, what's hard is the first character we're introduced to, I think sort of had the weakest performance. It was, I think the actress's definitely her first lead. I think maybe the first film she'd ever been in one, two shows before. So it's a rough start, but for me, after the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes, I'm on board. I enjoy seeing the sacrifices parents make for their children, America as a hope of new dreams. As you see the, kill, the, the children having to deal with the burden that their parents have placed on them. Uh, one of my favorite lines from the film was, I could be anything she wanted me to be. So yeah, just you see that tiger mom with the kids, the multiple generations struggles, but certainly melodramatic. In this film, babies are the dogs. You don't know who's getting out alive. I, to me, the acting here, and it was almost across the board, was just so, it just, I just thought it was bad to, for, for lack of a better term, not trying to be too harsh. And I think it just completely disconnected me from the proceedings. I noticed it in the first 20 minutes. Once I noticed it, I couldn't stop. Uh, I think some of the storylines were, were powerful, like you said. Uh, I think especially some of the the mothers, their relationship to their mothers. So it would have been the daughter's grandmothers. I think some of those stories showing some of the cultural norms in uh, China at the time and some of the hardships and heartache. I thought those stories had a really powerful kernel in them of humanity and heartbreak and perseverance and resilience. And, um, but man, I just felt like every time there was an emotional note it just struck me as straight melodrama. And, uh, and yeah, I think I'm just going to have to be the, play the bad guy here, Duncan. I'm, I think I'm, I'm Harry eating an ice cream, asking my wife while she's in front of the television. <laughs> and split everything half and half. I just could not, I couldn't get it. Uh, and I guess the only thing, the other thing I can say is I felt like everything this movie was trying to be, the farewell just does better. It does it better with its acting, its writing. I think it had a lot of humor, which was a great accent to its heart um and this just felt really scripted to me and like the emotion wasn't earned but written out of a book which it was yeah so i just gotta imagine how how incredible that book must have been to get brought to the big screen so fast and with so many challenges just in its narrative structure but ryan to go back to melodrama let's quote I mean, here to bring really quick to bring it back to the book i mean that that first story, the opening credits, I was all on board. And then I saw the first actress <laughs> and she tried to act and it just killed it for me. Oh, yeah. but, I mean, I thought that story was powerful. Uh, yeah, I was, I think I'd be really interested to read the book now, honestly. Back to melodrama. So we'll, we'll define melodrama sensational and designed to appeal strongly to the emotions takes precedence over detailed characterization. So basically just aiming for the heartstrings. Are there any melodramatic films? Do you think there's any place in art for melodrama or is it just a separate genre which just doesn't sing to you? I just think it's hard to navigate between something that is resonant with someone and the emotions they feel and it just being a Hallmark movie. Mm-hmm. So I think Hallmark, you know, obviously they trade in melodrama. And I think that it's just a really fine line because I think, you know, going back to our previous episode, I think Waves has been accused of melodrama. 
Um, Trey Edward Schultz's film, I have heard, read many reviews where they accused it of melodrama. But I think the reason why that didn't strike me as melodrama was based on, I would say, superior writing and performances. I would say uh, I enjoyed Schultz's camera and his all the all of the directorial tools he used to create emotion where this is just more straightforward. There's not a lot of, I mean, there's production design and there's a lot of money spent when you see flashbacks and things, but in terms of, you know, playing, seeing what's in the toolbox and pulling out a, a fun random toy and, and seeing what it does, it's just, it's not there. And so it just leaves all the weight on the writing and the acting. And I don't think it was up to snuff. So I think that that honestly is where the line it's about the writing and the acting um whether it ends up being a hallmark movie or whether it ends up being waves in my book i'm trying to think of some melodrama that works for me have you seen revolutionary road or little children yeah so that's i loved revolutionary road i did not like little children oh i love that little children <laughs> not Easy. like Easy. Not like that one character who loved children a little too much <laughs> i would i don't know if you want to admit that too much uh, and so, so another San Francisco film, Milk, uh, featuring the life of Harvey Milk, starring Sean Penn, directed by Gus Van Sant. Talk about a pinch about that more later. The most melodramatic scene, which was just absolutely shoehorned into the film. A young boy calls Harvey Milk, is saying he's going to kill himself. And Harvey tells him to just run away. And then the camera pulls back and we see the boys in a wheelchair. And it's like, okay. <laughs> But then, like, he calls back again later, but he says, he's like, oh, I assumed we had lost you. And the boy says, I didn't want to kill myself anymore. And it was like, there, I mean, it's straight up just the dialogue, just the thought. That that little moment brought me to tears. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that would see, I could see that as being powerful. Yeah, I don't know. It is a fine line. It's hard to, it's hard to uh, parse for sure. Yeah. So, but I, but I think, you know, to back up your point, it's, it's not the film that was making me cry in that moment. It's just the fact of a gay boy being driven to the point of suicide and just deciding maybe I do have something to live for. So it's not the film, it's the sentiment there. And I think as we're saying in Joy Luck Club, a lot of babies in peril, a lot of, you know, overbearing relationships. Yeah. So you can just say it did, it didn't earn it for you. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to like it again. That opener was just killer. And, and it, yeah, I just, it just took me out of it. So I feel like I'm almost disqualified from the start. If you're interested or enjoyed crazy rich Asians or the farewell, you might enjoy this. I was really impressed by that. Um, yeah, that was really interesting to me. So it reminded me also of the truth, a recent film by Karita, Japanese director. He, directs Juliette Binoche and Catherine Deneuve, um, two French actress and actresses and their mother-daughter relationship. Ethan Hawke plays the husband, also a minor character. Reminded me of Little Women. Apparently, I saw a lot of references to Terms of Endearment. That's a blind spot for me. And then for the kids, Brave. You know, at the, the Pixar film, it's all about mom and, mom and daughter drama. Yeah, Duncan, you did you did a lot more you did a lot more San Francisco uh cinema. You you really you really put in some homework here. We could have picked many different films. Uh and so yeah, walk us through some of those some of those other San Francisco great films in case people are interested. 
Dude, I I went for it. I think I've seen about a dozen San Francisco centric films over the last two weeks. And I was just sticking to San Francisco. I wasn't doing Oakland. We'll do an Oakland episode in the future. Best of San Francisco by the decade. Uh, Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock. This film still holds up. This is still great. Seeing a 1950s nightmare sequence, seeing San Francisco, that beautiful Technicolor. They're just gorgeous shots. So I'd still recommend this film. 1960s, I think the standout is Bullet. That car chase also still holds up so many years later is still the standard bear of what it's good. So in the 70s, yeah, Dirty Harry, uh, a little too simplistic reaction to the Miranda rights. And it's like, why do we got to be kind to criminals? Let's just all shoot them up, get them out. So for me, 70s winner goes to Bay Area transplant Francis Ford Coppola, The Conversation. Ooh, that's a good one. That's Gene Hackman, yeah? I haven't seen that one since college. That'd be a good revisit. Yeah, Gene Hackman there. So 80s, San Francisco got pretty wild in the 80s. Things, <laughs> things are out of control. Uh, well, we have, if you're going from dirty, hairy, let's shoot all the criminals to my experience in 2010, human feces greeting you on the sidewalk, something had to happen in the 80s and 90s. So what did we have in the 80s? Oh, we had 48 hours, uh, another cop drama. Language does not age well in this one. So I think the only real redeeming value is Eddie Murphy's uh, first big screen debut. But then we have Star, Star Trek 4. Ryan, do you know the plot to Star Trek 4? I don't think I do. I've seen oh. some of the old ones, but it's been a long time. Ryan, we go back in time to 1980 San Francisco so they can capture two humpback whales and save all of Earth from destruction because there's an alien that just makes whale noises and they don't know how to talk to it. <laughs> So this is so you're telling me that they were on cocaine. <laughs> so this is a fish out of water story about liberating whales. It is it is pure balls to the walls shenanigans. So it's a Sub, fun watch. Subtext: This is cocaine fueled, <laughs> and yeah, have a deadline. <laughs> and then also right online, I think the best in the '80s: Big Trouble in Little China. John Carpenter, Kurt Russell. I don't think this is a beautiful portrayal of chinatown but it's a fun film nonetheless 90s also loaded we have fincher's the game the rock i think the rock still holds up i think it was michael bay's second film i mean the rock has got to be over joy luck club i'm sorry <laughs> i'd say joy luck club is a more essential san francisco story uh, about the chinese experience here and i think the best comedy San Francisco is So I Married an Axe Murder. I still quote that one quite often. You know, that's a blind spot for me. We could do a blind date there. Uh, not essential viewing. I think, okay. it's, I think it's more of a fond nostalgia and Mike Myers playing a Scottish guy. If it ain't Scottish, it's crap. Head okay. move. There you've seen the whole film. <laughs> okay. Taking us on to the 2000s. Zodiac, Zodiac and Mel to toss up of which is the more essential San Francisco film. Just watch them both. Uh, and then also the oddballs, The Room. Have you seen The Room, Ryan? Oh, I know about The Room. I think I've seen the first 15 minutes. And then I thought, I think I might want to watch The Disaster Artist before I watch this. Okay. So yeah, Disaster Artist, James Franco from the peninsula in the Bay Area. Ryan, 
Take a guess. How many films do you think James Franco has directed? Six. 20. What? This dude cranks out film after film. What movies are we missing? Should we just do a James Franco marathon? Directorial marathon? No. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you thought about that. Oh, man. He did The Sound and Fury and As I Lay Dying, he's a Faulkner man? He likes dumb books. My goodness, how did I miss that? I don't even know. Because he's doing so many, he can't promote any of them. I don't know if I even want to Silly Faulkner with James Franco's face. (laughs) So The Room, cult classic, known as the Citizen Kane of bad films. You will go from painful boredom to shrieking with laughter over just how nonsensical this film is. See The Disaster Artist. I love that film, so check that one out. And the other one, we were talking about Nightcrawler, which is Jake Gyllenhaal as a crime News guy, just basically finding the warm bodies with the blood in the street and filming it. Last night, I watched a film, a documentary called The Bridge, which is about suicide jumpers and the Golden Gate Bridge. There's about two people a month who jump off the bridge. And this documentary was very straightforward, just uh, interviewing the families, interviews one survivor. It's, there's not a high survivor rate when you're jumping and reach 76 miles per hour after four seconds of falling. But just the voyeuristic aspect, they had two camera people filming both sides of the bridge every day for a year. And so to to see people truly jump off a bridge, it's shocking. And I mean, they they had like police on speed dial so they could try to prevent them, but yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds, that sounds pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. An hour and a half on suicide. So it's, yeah, it's a tough watch. It's certainly not melodramatic. It's not sentimental. It's, you know, family members, you know, they've recovered from the loss, but just talking about very matter of fact, how to help what went wrong, tough watch, definitely a unique film. And so that takes us to 2010. As we said, I think the best of the decade is last black man in San Francisco. But there's one documentary which I think we have to watch together. It is called Shut Up Little Man. And it's about a flamboyant guy and his alcoholic roommate and their neighbors who secretly recorded their conversations over a decade or two. Is that the audio misadventure? Yes. Okay. So yeah, we'll, it up. we'll watch that one. Oh, so yeah, those are the top top San Francisco films of the decade. I, I did the homework, even watched Escape from Alcatraz and Brendan Fraser in <laughs> Bedazzled with Elizabeth Hurley. There's some San Francisco scenes there. That one happened by chance. So if I'm missing anything San Francisco, please tell me and I will watch it. And going with more films, an essential part of being from the Bay Area is having a deep-seated beef with LA. And the thing about this is, LA has no idea this beef is going on. They're too busy living their life in the sun and having a good time. But over the last 10 years alone, Hollywood has ripped San Francisco apart. We have San Andreas. We got Godzilla, Pacific Rim, Hulk, Star Trek, Pixels, Ant-Man, Planet of the Apes, and Venom is even ripping up the neighborhood. So maybe, maybe LA does have a beef with San Francisco after all. But we think... The real thing that will destroy San Francisco is got to be Facebook and Twitter. (laughs) 
going to happen. I have not, I'm this whole time. I'm just trying to figure out if it's going to be Jeff Bezos is going to kill us. Is it is, was David Fincher, you know, with the social network really telling us what was going to happen there. I mean, who's going to get us first. That's what I've been watching. What, what about you? You know, I've been, I've had a, a bit of a, a bit of a random collection. I watched tombstone for the first time, uh, kind of a nineties classic Western heard a lot of good things about it. I've been living in New Mexico for about a year. So the West is kind of getting in my head. I'm becoming more interested. I've got a few dollars more once upon a time in the West amongst others on my watch list to kind of delve into the West. That isn't John Wayne, if I can help it. Uh, I'm not <laughs> huge on John Wayne's Westerns, although I do know that there are good ones out there. I just got to figure out which ones those are rather than fly blind. Rewatched Memento, Duncan, to, to pay homage to your guy, Guy Pierce. My in guy. In preparation for Tenet. Really love Memento. I mean, we could do a whole episode on Memento. It's one of my favorite films. It's brilliant. It holds up. Uh, it still plays with your mind, even when you already know the puzzle. Then Rewind. Uh, I don't know that I can recommend this. It's so kind this of one, a long... I haven't even heard of what's Rewind. It's incredibly good in the sense it's powerful and it's how the person heals, but it's devastating, Duncan. It's basically about a guy who goes through old home videos and unravels this horrible, basically sexual abuse. He was abused as a child. His sister was abused and you just see him unpack that and talk to his parents about it. And you see the people who did it. And this is a documentary, right? Yeah. Okay. Is, I think I've seen the trailer. It is. I can't recommend it because it's absolutely crushing that such stories exist. The fact that Sasha Newlinger, uh, who is the director and the boy who experienced the sexual abuse at the hands of family members, the fact that he can make this movie is incredible in the sense of his courage and how much pain and how much he unpacks. It's just a singularly searing documentary. I couldn't sleep that night after I watched it. Ooh. It's really Oh my goodness. I did not know what I was getting into. Uh, easily one of the best doc documentaries of the year. One of the best I've seen in a while, but it is not an easy watch. Have a friend or a therapist or Sean Penn on speed dial. Uh, it is rough. And then finally, uh, I watched Being John Malkovich uh, in preparation for Charlie Kaufman's newest. And it's going on theme here with I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Kaufman's newest film coming to Netflix next weekend. So I was just doing a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of revisiting there to kind of prep myself for that one. Would like to see Synecdoche again. I think I've seen Eternal Sunshine enough. It's really good, but I've been there several times. Yeah. So next episode will be Charlie Kaufman, whether we're going over some of his writing, some of his directing, we'll be covering something. So yeah, my, my final two, what I've been watching, I like to keep it light. I like to watch TV comedy. I'm a silly boy at heart. I promise the best comedy of the last 10 years on TV has got to be the Detroiters featuring Sam Richardson, the scene stealer from Veep, which is saying a lot considering how great that cast is. Even got Buster Bluth, our boy Tony Hale on there. Ew. Tim Robinson, SNL alumni, and now has his own super freak show. I think you should leave on Netflix. Watch those. 
uh, a great comedy there. And also just started watching Lovecraft Country. Yeah, uh, I noticed that. That's Jonathan Majors. That uh, ties us all the way back to uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah, Jonathan Monty Popping on the screen. Saw him for the first time a few months ago in The Five Bloods. Now Last Black Man in San Francisco. And here in Lovecraft Country, an HBO show produced by Jordan Peele, which basically proposes the question, which is scarier, H.P. Lovecraft's racist beliefs or the monsters that he wrote about so well? So yeah, I'm two episodes into that. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, basically monsters, Jim Crow era. Each episode takes it in a completely different direction. You, you had me at Jonathan Majors. I love that. <laughs> okay. Guy. Duncan, I am curious. Have you seen Anomalisa, Charlie Kaufman's uh, stop motion puppet? Nope. That's that's. Yeah. I'm going to do my homework next week. I Godspeed, sir. Uh, is it <laughs> painful? There, to watch I, I'm not going to spoil it. I just can't wait till the next episode. I want to see if you are scarred as I am. There is a scene that will scar you. I'm warning you now. So puppets scarring me. Uh, I mean, I remember the labyrinth was very scary. Gamork, the messenger from the nothing in the never ending story. We'll see if little adult stop animation can uh, crush my childish heart. Tune in next week to see that. <laughs> Ooh. I'll give you fucking magic, you know. Magic? It's hardly the hottest ticket in town, darling. What? Where's the next one? Uh, Are your shirt off? Yeah. Did I overheat? <laughs> You already threw a tantrum on? I missed that. I record this Iggy Pop style. I got to go shirtless.